Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guests are Alex White, Samir Rayani, David Hoffman, the founders of Next Big Sound. It allowed users to track mentions of bands and musical artists across several music websites. It calculate and graph each of the statistics over a course of time, comparing the data to that of other similar other similar bands. They analyzed hundreds of thousands of bands, and ultimately Pandora acquired them in May of 2015. They're all on to new startups. Alex is with SubCity, and David and Samir over at Beam. We have a ton to get into. This is one of my favorite stories. I've known you guys from the very, very early days, so this is going to have a little sentimental music to it as well. But this is actually the first time that you guys have all been together talking about this in a while, right? Yeah, it's exciting. So so this is where I'd love to start just to kind of set the stage a little bit is you guys have an interesting way of how the actual business hit was created a couple of pivots early on. Can you just kind of go through the early days and then we'll get into like product market fit and all that kind of stuff, but like set the stage as far as how it all got started and, and where y'all came from to, to sync up on this. Yeah. Well, thanks for having us and pulling us all together to relive <laughs> some of the years uh, where we were just starting out next big sound. We bought the next big sound domain name off the open marketplace. Yahoo had let the domain lapse and we grabbed it, I think in 2000, um, when we met at Northwestern in an entrepreneurship class run by Troy Hennikoff, who ultimately ran Techstar Chicago and Math Ventures and a great pillar of the Chicago ecosystem and beyond. The first idea was a streaming music site that let anyone create their own fantasy record label and sign bands they thought were gonna become popular to that label. And we track how early on you sign those artists and you get points based on how many people sign the band after you. So kind of like a fantasy sports for music idea. And that was all great, except people weren't using it very often and we had no way to make any money. And we were 21 and 22 years old and we were raising a $150,000 seed round. And it was the great financial crisis of 2008 that hit. And all of those things conspired to, and we'd worked on it for a year and a half, needing to basically shut the company down when we got into Techstars in 2009. So May 7th, we moved out to Boulder, Colorado, drove overnight in David's VW. Was it a rabbit? All it was packed. a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, arrived in Boulder for the first day of Techstars and told David Cohen and Nicole Glaros that uh, we didn't want to do the idea anymore that we'd applied with. And they said, that's totally fine. Um, what are you switching to? And we said, we have no idea. And they said, that's a huge problem. We're like, we know. And so we had investor demo day 90 days from then, and that kicked off a very intense period between uh, May 7th and June 6th, roughly, where we were figuring out a bunch of different ideas, meeting with mentors. David and Samir were flying back for midterms and finals at Northwestern. And we ultimately uh, started tracking our first data point for artists on June 6th, 2009. And that was a dated day that we celebrated every year of the company's existence. It just passed. And I always think about it. And then we were kind of off from there with our data analytics business focused on the music industry, still tracking artists. But instead of having to upload and create a new site where people interact with music, we were just tracking where people were already engaged with their favorite 
artists and musicians. That's interesting. So you make the pivot during Techstars and so you're starting to track bands, right? And is it, I'm going to track country or rock or rap, or is it, I'm going to just track bands in any kind of way? Like how all of a sudden are you trying to say, Hey, we're going to collect all this information and then I'm going to try to turn around and sell it to somebody. Yeah. David or Samir want to. Yeah, this, this is a fun one. Um, yeah. Samir and I have a tendency to just build things and it was a great exercise in restraint and not building things in the sort of early days of this. We were talking to a bunch of band managers that Alex knew and other people in the music industry. And we were asking them if they were paying attention to what was happening on MySpace, not to age ourselves, but that was the most popular streaming service at the time when we got started. And they're like, yeah, we don't know what the hell's going on there. We know fans are listening to music, but we have no idea at what scale. Some of the more sophisticated ones had hired interns and giving them spreadsheets to write down every day what the new number of plays were, comments, likes, friend counts, and they were tracking it, but they had no idea what to do with it. So the first thing we tried, what was it? Was it a PDF? Is that, mm -hmm. this is so long ago, I'm trying to go back. Yeah. So we, the first thing we tried was this beautiful PDF. We tracked 10 bands, I think it was over the course of a week and plotted these beautiful time series graphs of each of those metrics, packaged them up and sent them to everyone we were talking to and we got crickets back and we thought we were onto something and it was super demotivating you know negative signal and then alex realized talking to a bunch of these managers and calling them like hey why aren't you opening these great pdfs we've automatically put together for you you know meanwhile we're doing them completely manually and pretending they're automated and they say we're on blackberries we can't open your PDF attachments <laughs> so the next week we did the same thing again, but in a plain text email and everybody replied. They asked if we could add more bands to track, asked if we could add more people to the list to forward it to. And it was clear that we'd found a need that was unmet in that moment. So we already mentioned MySpace and Blackberries in the first 10 minutes. So we're like very topical, relevant, yeah. <laughs> actionable tips for your listeners. Yeah. What is an iPhone in this, in this day and age? So this is interesting because, I mean, you guys could have pretty easily just said, hey, this doesn't work. And we just pivoted to something else when you actually had something. But really, the whole point was it was a delivery mechanism that you went and actually talked to the ideal customer and said, hey, help me understand why or why not. So two parts about this time period that I think are important is the word pivot didn't exist in the lexicon like the way it did now. There was actually a Read Write Web article, if you remember that publication, yeah. Changing Horses Midstream, which was the story of Next Big Sound shifting from one idea to another, which I think is actually a lot better of an analogy or way to phrase it than pivot sounds like graceful and fun and like basketball or ballet. And Changing Horses Midstream is like, you know, if you miss the horse, you are swept away down the stream and you're only changing the horse midstream if your horse was shot or injured. And that's a lot more what that feels like, I think, to founders than, you know, a graceful pivot. And the second thing was customer development in the lean startup methodology wasn't yet popularized. Eric Reese hadn't released the book yet, but there was Four Steps to the Epiphany by Stephen Blank, who's kind of Eric Reese's mentor. And that was really our guiding 
um, text during that summer of tech stars. And a big part of that was, Hey, here's 10 band managers. We're going to talk to them every week for a, you know, three month period and allow us to get those iterations on delivery mechanism. Like you said, it wasn't kind of a one and done thing. It was a, Hey, I have my standing call with 10 managers on Monday going through their biggest problems and trying to figure out what we can build to solve them and what they're valuable enough to pay for. And I think that really helped keep us on track for what we were building. It's, it's funny you say that, talk about the delivery mechanism specifically, because that was the business. Right? We knew all this activity was happening online and it was staggering. But the, I guess, capturing the delivery mechanism part really turned this into a business. Yeah. So is it more that you got, did you guys create this category? Like, did you, did, did this market exist already or did you create it? So Nielsen was already for the kind of the grandfather in the industry. They released uh, SoundScan in 1991, tracking physical CD sales, so weekly CD sales information. Yeah. But no one was really tracking any of this information digitally. And there was no artist dashboards like all the services have nowadays. It was just the MySpace page. So myspace.com slash Akon. And you could see the total number of plays, views, fans, and comments, but you couldn't see had that all happened overnight or over the last 10 years. And so it wasn't until we started tracking these numbers that we realized Samir built uh, a crawler to crawl Akon's MySpace page. And there were half a million streams that happened between midnight and you know 10 a.m. the next morning. And this was just a tremendous amount of online activity that wasn't being measured and reported till then. And that kind of kicked off the, you know, endless process of figuring out with all of this data on consumption, how do we actually turn it into something that's valuable? Who's it valuable to? And how do we build, you know, a scalable venture scale business that we can uh, yeah. on top of this information? So when you think of it, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of companies today, yesterday, tomorrow, there'll be all these data analytics companies that pop up all the time that are able to take a, a wide variety of data and ultimately turn it into something, but they struggle with it being able to actually sell it. You guys were able to package this all up, put it into a delivery mechanism that obviously has worked. How did you guys figure out, like, or, or I should say, where did you start with as far as kind of selling this or figuring out, you started with band managers, but like, are they the ones that bought it? Did you go to record labels? Did you like, did you go to producers? Like, how did you all of a sudden get to the point? Cause we can fast track and say, you had a deal with Sony. Like you can look it up. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not hidden anymore, <laughs> but like, there's a long way to go between where you were to get to Sony. Yeah. And we've always wanted to sell individually to bands and managers, although we knew that band managers were a terrible venture market. There's 5,000 band managers we estimate in the US and they hate spending money and they're lone wolf, and hard to target. And so when we asked them to pay, they almost invariably all kicked us to the record label to pay. And that was kind of our introduction into the label ecosystem, along with our free tool that we launched August 6th or 7th around in 2009, it's kind of the first site you could type in any band and pull up all their social data and compare it to other bands. We modeled it very carefully after compete.com, which was big at the time. And David Cancel, the founder, actually ended up being an angel investor in Next Big Sound. And so we launched the free version of the site. 
We got a lot of inbound interest from the music industry. We let people sign up for free weekly email reports on the information they cared about. So we were in their inbox every week, kind of building that trust and relationship and association with Next Big Sound and data uh, for their artists. Um, and then Sony was just a long, slow process. It turns out that they were at the beginning stages of evaluating should they, who should they partner with for this data intelligence. They'd shelved internal initiatives doing this and had an evaluation committee that was put together. But basically we launched the free version of the site, raised our seed round, and then used that money to figure out what can we charge and build a value on top of that free foundation. It's really interesting. So when you, you actually are using kind of, I mean, this is before freemia or uh, PLG or anything like that really existed or, yeah. or had any kind of labels to it, but you essentially are coming up with an idea to say, Hey, how do we get lead gen? Cause to go after a band manager, there is no zoom info for band, band managers. And I'm sure that doesn't go over really well, even if it did, but right. w walk us through a little bit about like, how did you come up with this idea? And then like, how did you use it to ultimately then create your initial sales? I mean, the, the freemium part, it's funny that we, we jumped to that. It was like the early days of, of freemium, right? And the, the utility we'd kind of proven already to ourselves, at least in the emails that we were sending and people asking for more of those before there was even a website behind it. But then it was looking at what was working online and copying it. It wasn't a sophisticated approach by any means. We saw that compete worked well with being able to type in any site. And we said, you should be able to do the same thing for a band. But then watching the email addresses that would come in through there, it was this simultaneous sort of push and pull of Alex getting introductions from band managers or anyone else he could track down to get into the labels and going through the logs. I mean, like, oh, 15 people from Sony signed up yesterday. I wonder what email this went out on. And one of those people was in their early direct-to-consumer groups and had a ton of opinions about it. And we would just embrace these free users, but at major enterprises that we knew could pay us a lot and listen uh, as much as we could. And we got a, a crash course in how do you actually suss out the needs of a very large organization with competing priorities um, to a point where you can put a big price tag on it and turn that into to something that they'll pay in annual subscriptions. Yeah. We, we tried a lot of things just to, you know, talk to more people about what they'd actually pay for. I remember one thing we tried was at the bottom of every artist dashboard, we'd say, are you this band or are you this band manager? Verify this page. And we didn't actually know what verify was going to mean or do at that time. We just put it there to see if anyone would click that button. And we got a flurry of emails coming in saying, hey, I don't actually, I don't know what this means, but I'm this band's manager. And that got Alex or David or myself on the phone with them to just learn more about what their problems are. Yeah, we made a nice verification badge and they would leave their name, their email, their phone number, how many bands they managed. And it was basically you know, the perfect top of the funnel. Yeah. I, I remember calling them and getting the answer to of like, is this your website calling me? Right. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, I do. Great. Tell me more. Now, the, a lot of these tools are all like instrumented now. Like there's hot leads, you know, call yeah. where it like automatically yeah. dials you and you're what, you know, clicking around on the website. I think back then too, it was a lot more open space or just getting 
you know, having a well-designed site really stood out and something, you know, some of these tools and functionality were easier to break through. Well, it's interesting because so far you haven't talked too much about the actual, like, Hey, I'm going to close this deal. So much of what you've been talking about is this is essentially learning. And it's very much about putting out these tools. Like, I mean, you guys had a bunch of bets, right? You had a bunch of hypotheses and thoughts to say, Hey, I think this is going to work in some kind of way. And all of a sudden you start doing this analytics thing. People start opening your emails. People start asking for more information. They click the verify. Essentially, you're building a database of all of these people and who they do and what, because none of this really existed at the time. Right. It was more of a like, who has the best Rolodex and has been in the industry? And that's how how it was. And so you guys are starting to create this. Obviously, there's VC money initially. Like you had Techstars, so you had some credibility there because Techstars were very, very new and then, and then you got Foundry Group, and you got Brad Feld, you got Jason Mendelson, which is a, a fun story on how you guys raised that money. I remember Jason telling me that story. That was fun. Well, that one will have to be Alex. You guys can tell that one another time. But all of a sudden, you start to get some credibility through Foundry because they have a big name, obviously, in the space. And then, and and you're starting to get some deals. Like, how did you guys turn from, hey, we're collecting all this information to? Let's actually sell something and make money. Like, how do we turn this into not just a free data collection type of play, but actually how do we make money on it down the road? Yeah. So we launched in August of 2009, raised the seed round in September, and it was probably the February, March board meeting where we were planning to roll out our self-serve pricing strategy. That was always the strategy was to roll it out directly to artists, managers, and anyone who wanted to sign up, not a kind of big enterprise sales initiative. And so we had a very innovative pricing method, which we called the star system. So we would rank artists based on how popular they were online so that John Bon Jovi would pay more than, you know, an up and coming singer songwriter. And we thought that was very fair and innovative and exciting and built there wasn't you know the stripes and all the integrations so we had you know credit card merchant accounts with all the fun credit card processors and built that whole pricing model to a you put punch in any artist and get the star rating one to 20. that was a 20 star some first <laughs> <laughs> um and uh we were basically told that um, not to innovate in pricing and do you remember wow. the specific artist they asked about? They're like, put in the Rolling Stones. We're sitting in this board meeting. Put in the Rolling Stones. Four stars. <laughs> I was screaming the Rolling Stones. I didn't think you even could. It was like, you're seriously going to try and charge with it? We weren't, we weren't tracking iTunes or like physical CD sales. It was just online activity. So all the legacy artists performed horribly. <laughs> Slightly so flawed. And then we were like, we we're already starting to have some pricing conversations with these band managers we've been working with. And basically all of a sudden, instead of talking about like the value we were creating and features they wanted to see and all of that, I was arguing with them about how popular their bands were online because you could punch in any artist. So then you could compare any artist to any other artist. And they're like, you know, they're label mates with, you know, Mayday Parade and, you know, there's no, they open for them. There's no way that they're more popular online than, you know, that sort of thing. And so we killed that pricing schema and rolled out a three-tiered system, 10, 35, and $65 per band per month based on a bunch of feature sets. Anyone want to share the problem with that pricing model? 
You remember? Yeah, I, got it. <laughs> I can't remember. Every, every feature, we had to decide which tier we were rolling it out to. Oh. <laughs> All of a sudden, our tiny dev team had like three different products we were building and maintaining. Um, and it was a disaster. And so then we rolled up that into $79 per band per month, grandfathered in anyone who was subscribing at the lower tiers. And then anytime we improve the product, all of our users got to feel that instead of just one tier. So that was kind of the self-serve trajectory. It ultimately ended up being a low six-figure annual business for us. We put it into maintenance mode after five years. We kept trying lots of multiple different things, hiring people focused directly on it, marketing, outreach, all of that. We were never able to materially change the trajectory. It was just kind of slowly growing on its own over time, but not fast enough to, to matter to the business. And then as that was happening, we were making our way through the Sony evaluation process and we ended up winning. We were up against other startups, but also the big incumbent data businesses. And um, they asked for pricing and we basically put together a proposal. We knew at the time there were only four um, major labels. Now there's three. So we really need to get a sizable revenue run rate from just the label category. So our pricing model was about a million dollars per label broken into three buckets for pricing and comp or competitive artists and data ingestion and, and other buckets, seat licenses and negotiated with them and signed a six month pilot that we ultimately converted into a three year longer term agreement. And then we got the other two major labels on board as well in very different models for your audience might be interesting. Like um, one of the labels was very kind of top down and, you know, introduced the co-chairman, the CEO of recorded music, boom, 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 boom. And then another label was exactly the opposite. You had to sign up each of the individual sub-label groups and then roll all that together to the central corporate entity and say, look, you're paying all this money across all your sub-labels. We'll give you a better deal and other you know, value if we can do a consolidated agreement. Wait a minute. So let, let me get this straight. So you guys start off doing self-service pricing between like sub hundred bucks a month. And then you do this, this Sony application pitch thing. And you walk in there, three knuckleheads say, I want a million bucks. Are you shitting your pants being like, are we too high? Are we too low? Like, how the hell am I going to justify this? Like, how on earth did you figure this out and Alex, not lose everything in the process of doing it? Alex, he's, he's going to say the highest number and not blink and then just wait. Over, over breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was always like a really scary yeah. time. And, you know, you'd have to... We'd sit, sit down before Alex would go into that meeting and look him dead in the eye and ask him for those numbers. And we would debate internally, is this, you know, the right number to ask for? And I mean, we still don't know to this day if we could have got more or not, yeah. but we got, we got what we asked for. We, we had something else on our side that was unique to the model that we were following that I think could be a good lesson. And this is a playbook that I think a lot of people have abstracted, which is gather a bunch of publicly free available data, enrich it, and then charge for it. And the competitive data piece Alex mentioned 
was what was super interesting about what we were doing. Because you could just buy it $79 a month, like we were talking about, as many artists as you needed. That doesn't add up anywhere close to a million, right? But as soon as you look at the whole universe of hundreds of thousands of artists and want to benchmark against them, compare them, spot up and coming artists before they're popular, then we have this asset that we're sitting on that's really hard to even price because it's so unique and so valuable. So I think we had that going for us too. That's interesting. And a couple of other things. So not only you just pointed out like the biggest price discrepancy in serving customer bases, which, you know, obviously we felt through the life of the company. We had a mid-tier, which was the kind of middle segment of the music industry. So the first kind of enterprise sale that wasn't self-serve credit card was to Provident Music Group. They're a Christian record label out of Nashville. You guys remember this? Colin yeah. and I. And we sold 5000 the first year. It was a three-year deal with like escalating terms built in. It was like 5000 7000 9000 So it was a three-year deal. So just got used to like issuing pricing proposals to various labels based on how many artists they were working with and, you know, value to their business. And that was chugging along in 2011. We ran a very deliberate exercise where we were trying to figure out, you know, you have the long tail of the music industry. It's a very oddly shaped industry, although other businesses face this too, but you know, the head is very concentrated in four major labels, now three. There's a million independent artists around the world. And then there's this, like, what is that segment in the middle? And is that a lucrative business for us? And so we spent time really tracking all the things from, you know, first contact to final close of the contract. And what did that come in? And very quickly, like in a two, three month time period, figured out that the economics were upside down and we couldn't build a big business selling into the midsection of the music industry, like mid-sized firms. And we had competitors who it took them probably two years to learn that. So they were like staffing up across the country and we're like, my gosh, did we totally blow it here? And it wasn't until they you know, imploded and got over their skis that like, oh no, the model doesn't work. And we learned that in three months instead of thankfully three years. Yeah. I mean, and also you should just keep in mind that when we did sell that to Sony initially, it had come with a ton of caveats and asterisks around what needs to be built in order for this contract to be paid. And, you know, luckily we took that bet and it paid off that both the other label, all the other labels actually wanted those exact same features. So when we came time to sell to those labels, we didn't have to rebuild a ton of, a ton of stuff. That's huge. I mean, that's, that was going to be one of my questions is you guys have this kind of, at, at the time it didn't exist, but you had this kind of like PLG motion going on where you had all this like young, small, you know, sub $100 subscription kind of business that was growing. You probably at the time didn't know what really the max was going to be. Then all of a sudden you take this bet to say, hey, let's go to the big dogs and go to, you know, let's go to Sony. You obviously didn't have the features or, you know, the this foundation to really be able to support a true enterprise deal like that. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you you essentially sold Sony and didn't have most of the things that they were ultimately gonna want. You kind of sold it in such a way based on Samir that you were gonna build all of those things and then, you know, kind of made the bet to say, Well, I think these things are also gonna be needed by the other guys. Yeah, part of our you know, development process and what was actually happening was I was just doing laps around New York, LA, Nashville, and just meeting with anyone and everyone, either 
you know, top of the funnel people who come in through the Verify Artist program or reached out to us or that we emailed ourselves or knew or were introduced to, and then collecting feedback. I had this, do you guys remember that working document? This was the Seth Godin idea, which is like, how do you actually together bind up a bunch of options for what you can build and use that as kind of a consultative sale. It would now be called, I think, to kind of go through and be like, are song level features more interesting to you, geographic functionality or, you know, forecasting and predictions and having them do stack ranking exercises, et cetera. And I would basically like hoover up as much information as I could, dump it back in Boulder with David and Samir and the rest of the team who are actually building every day and then just do those laps over and over again. So we got to find, I would never say we found like the one breakthrough thing that they would pay for, but enough stacked together that they were willing to make the leap with us. A lot of that was their internal data systems and proprietary data at the big scale, which is totally different than the self-serve model where you're just connecting Facebook and Google analytics, et cetera. This was like, Hey, we're going to send you our daily iTunes track sales, our physical CD sales. You have global needs across the world where they have to authenticate their Facebook for all of their accounts globally, which breaks Facebook system even. So a little of it was like, oh my gosh, can we support this? But also, wow, this is all new uncharted territory because Facebook doesn't have, can't even support this kind of yeah. multi-user plus permissioning. Yeah. And I mean, at that time, Spotify hadn't even been in the US. So as news, you know, streaming sources had come on board, these labels were like, can you, can you integrate or can you send your data to next big sound? Can you integrate with these new streaming services? Because we had gotten in super early. And that was our leverage. The only leverage we had over a Facebook or a Twitter would be Sony or Warner Universal going knock, knock, knock. Hey, yeah. can you turn up this on for next big sound. And they're like, who the hell's next big sound? <laughs> and, you know, of course these labels control the biggest Facebook yeah. page, eight of 10 of the top pages. But it seems, it seems like one of the things, and obviously you guys work very, very well together, but one of the things that you're talking about is you're able to essentially make bets or you're making tests and you iterate them through them fast, whether it's going to Sony and going to the enterprise, pulling the trigger on the, on the medium or the midsize kind of companies, eventually saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to put it into like low power mode on the, on the self-serve. Like, how did you guys kind of figure out how to do that? Cause that, that wasn't really like a popular Thing at the time i mean you kind of as the books came out about this you were helping write some of them what whether you got author you know notes or not is a different story but you guys were kind of figuring out this like test and repeat really fast how did you figure all that out well we went through a really terrible accelerator in 2008 called illinois ventures i ventures 10 in champaign illinois and that was 90 days and for ten thousand dollars or $25,000 for 10% of the company. And afterward, they told us that they didn't think we should continue doing this business and basically gave up on the team and the idea. Later came back and caused some trouble around our seed financing that Jason Mendelson helped work through. But story for another time on, on financing dynamics. But we had always operated by force on the kind of like 90 day sprint schedule because that was 25k and we're like where do we need to be in 90 days because we need to absolutely get there and then we got into tech stars and it was 18,000 at the time so we're like 
we have a demo day on August 6th and we need to raise money off of that. So what do we have to do working backwards? And it was a pretty illuminating thing for us when we hired our first employees that like a 90 day runway was not an inspiring, motivating thing, but a petrifying, you know, I need to update my LinkedIn and resume uh, type thing. So we were kind of used to that 90 day, you know, the company's dead unless we do X, Y, Z window. So I think it was a pretty natural transition to kind of time box things yeah. where even within 90 days, all right, we're 60, 30 and others. I don't know if yeah. you guys have other thoughts on the time boxing criticality. Time, time boxing was huge. I think the other thing we had was uh, a nice sort of diversity in ways to learn quickly. Um, so between Alex being able to get a ton of meetings set up and conversations directly, Samir able to pull a bunch of data that we could literally turn around and show either in a CSV or whatever format and get a reaction to. And then me working as a designer, putting together a ton of smoke and mirrors concepts. I mean, the number of designs for applications of data or mock reports or emails that we did that we never built was probably 10 to one for design to actually build. But we were showing them to people and getting reactions and getting feedback and having those just different assets to get in front of people sped up our learning tremendously. That was a big, we moved the company when we were nine people, everyone to New York City in 2012. And it's just to like jump on the subway and go up and sit with you know the user and Powerful. When we Try ordered it. swag, we ordered mouse pads because we wanted them to see our logo every time <laughs> they sat down at their computer. And then we would do our laps across the major label offices, literally going office to office, sitting down next to them, asking how it was going, helping them pull reports. And we'd see these mouse pads everywhere. And we'd go, <laughs> between us showing up all the time and you having our swag, this better stick. Powerful. <laughs> Tell them about the black background ethnographic research. <laughs> Dave, do you want to tell that? You can tell that one. So we were building this dashboard specifically for the labels, and it looked amazing, very inspired by the Bloomberg terminals. David had done a fantastic job designing this dashboard. We were building it. We built it, We sh- and we had launched it to the labels. And then we went into their offices one day, and this lady comes in to one of the meetings with a three-ring binder stacked full of printed sheets of the dashboards, full ink, like black background and blue lines, just wasting their ink on printing out every single one of these dashboards. So that was, you know, a piece of feedback we took and then went into light mode for everything. But this was before, you know, computers could adapt yeah. to, to the browser. That's wild. What's interesting, two two things that that I hear a lot is that I heard you guys do is all the different design mockups you were selling and working with customers literally based on designs, not on working products, not on working demos, but on designs. Mm -hmm. And now they have, you know, Figma and Miro and all these different things that you can have click designs, which is like really, really cool. But at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if it is usable, just show them what it's going to look like screen by screen by screen. And they're going to connect the dots for you. And you guys did it without spending thousands, millions of dollars, having a zillion engineers who would mock this up. So that was really powerful. And then you couple that with, you physically walked in the door and you sat next to them. Mouse pads, that's some pretty cool stuff. Cause I used to, I remember I used to sling some, some swag mouse pads back in the day as well. But so you, you're sitting there and you're learning from your customers. Like you're, you're, you're learning from your users. 
And the fact to walk in, regardless of what color it is, that these people are printing out. I love the three read by reference. I feel like I'm like walking back in like decades before, but blast from the past over here. But that's how they thought about it is they were printing things out and they were looking at it saying, okay, how do you see this? How do you look at this? And it was just, everything was just a giant experiment. Yeah, we were so, very intentional about, um, you know, still have a reference document, the next nearest revenue. And our, Samir would always say, like, if we can get to a million a year in revenue, we can get to two million a year in revenue, 10 million a year in revenue. I'm like, man, yeah, every million was very, very hard for us. Um, and a lot of that was like, all right, well, what does the next nearest revenue look like? So can we get other non-record labels to pay us over $200,000 a year. And that's the proof point that, you know, we can sell to other segments of the music business, like agents, publishers, promoters, et cetera. Yeah. Can we get the self-serve platform to, you know, X thousand paying customers? Can we close new international revenue? Can or should we launch next big book, which is doing the exact same thing we're doing for music industry, but for book publishers? And we kind of just sequentially worked through them one by one. It was like, man, it'd be best and easiest if this next revenue would work because the platform's built to service it and wouldn't require that many changes. Yeah. You can tell by the fact that we launched Next Big Book uh, with Macmillan that like none of the other next nearest revenues panned out. And we had to go pretty far away to Next Big Book where we had to add only Goodreads, I think, as a data source. But we had to change, you know, fork the product into books and authors instead of artists and tracks. And thankfully, we did that because we signed some big contracts there. So let's let, talk to me a little bit about the team, because obviously it was it was bigger than just the three of you guys. Obviously, there was a bunch of engineers. Samir, you you had a, a, di a, a nice team there. But what what is your first initial like? sales leaders, sales reps, like what does it look like out like from a go to market standpoint as far as it's not just Alex flying around, but ultimately additional people, because you can only be in so many cities at one time. So we met someone who'd spent 30 years at Sony Music and we met lots of the music industry went through layoffs every year from like 2001 through 2015, probably. And so there was no shortage of people that had spent their careers at global major labels and were interested in what we were doing as a new take on it. But there was only one that kind of wrote the longest email I've ever gotten back around like feedback and thoughts on building the business. And we went back and forth trading ideas and notes and ultimately got pretty interested in his background and working with him. And he had hired someone who was chairing the evaluation committee at Sony Music and had good relationships throughout the building and the company. And, you know, we structured a commission-based sales agreement with him, starting with Sony and then broadened out to the, you know, is there a repeatable, scalable sales process in the middle segment of the music industry and other non-music verticals? And kind of in the same way we were kind of time boxing and sequencing things, he and I together were tag teaming all of the sales. We made the mistake that's now really well known about hiring sales people in tandem instead of sequentially and you know went through worked with two other sales representatives through the life of the company and was were unable to find someone who could um, reliably grow 
sales and close big deals beyond me. And I view that as, you know, the main failure and reason why an acquisition made sense was we weren't able to develop a repeatable playbook that we could hand to anyone else to, to really sell. As you could tell from some of these huge giant contracts, multi-year agreements with all different building requirements and new technology that needed to come around, like that's not something you can outsource. And, you know, we, so we weren't able to replicate that successfully. We did end up selling into our music intelligence tools into brands and agencies like Pepsi, American Express, through those procurement processes, six-figure deals. And each one was kind of its own, you know, consultative bespoke enterprise sale, me in tandem or solo with whoever I needed to bring in to close those deals. I remember when Alex read the book, Predictable Revenue, and when the phrase repeatable, scalable business model just got burned into my brain. And it always, it was a weird place to be because we had significant revenue, but we weren't repeating it or growing it in the way that we wanted to. And it wasn't predictable. predictable, (laughs) So, you know, it's the, this, to bring that back to the sales team that goes alongside that, I think in the dream version, you just have that clear product market fit. It's growing at a clip and you're adding salespeople to accelerate that. But what we ended up getting was, was not that, but the early sales hires were incredible because, or Colin in, in this example, because without his Rolodex and those connections, getting that first sale would have been pretty challenging. We read back on this. What do you guys think? I mean, would you do something different now that, I mean, there's obviously all the different sales books and things out now and, and Alex, it's easy to, you know, play. This is what I would have done. But when you, when you look back on it, would you do something different or would you have just said, if I would have known now, I would have just not even done it to begin with. (laughs) Well, we've since learned that Nielsen had embedded people across kind of all different businesses. Like Nielsen, we already always knew was a giant company, but we didn't know that they had like paid Nielsen people within all the data sources like a Walmart, Amazon, iTunes, Apple, and, you know, resources within the labels. So I think, you know, knowing what we were up against is is terrifying in retrospect. I think the, you know, main thing from a, predictable revenue standpoint. I must've read that the year it came out and saw Aaron Ross speak and and talked with him was like, could we have um, hired two different sales leaders at the same time, you know, 30 year veterans of different major labels to go after this and kind of double the speed with which we could learn and validate these different segments. The market size learning was really interesting too, right? Like we've talked a lot about, there were only four major record labels. If that had been 40, that would have been a very different business. So we picked a very constrained place to play, at least where we were able to make those big sales. Yeah. Yeah, We estimate there was 30 to 50,000 bands online that had any meaningful amount of online activity. And we were unable to kind of resegment the existing industry and sell this tool to everyone of those 30 to 50,000. And so that, and the middle was up too low of a price point to justify the complexity in the field sales organization needed to sell into that group. There's a couple things we did really well around the 
product-led growth is what they call it now, but the free tool that lets anyone compare bands and sign up for free weekly email reports. We did an annual state of the online music industry report that was passed around and shared tremendously as we were kind of beating the drum for years and years that this isn't just like some fringe activity. This is like increasingly how people are interacting with bands and musicians going forward, but then kind of clawing to get revenue wherever we could. It was painful from a product customer service and you know growth standpoint and there's a lot of learnings here you guys are just filled up with things to do and not to do but this is this is really i mean when when you look at it and, and i know we are, are getting close to time but so i i'm interested in this last question is what what do you think is one of the best bets that you guys made that you guys made a bet and that was like this helped change the trajectory of the company is it is it a Techstars thing? Is it a funding thing? Is it a customer thing? Is it a people thing? I'd say Billboard. Alex getting a deal with Billboard magazine was one of those huge direction-changing things. What did you guys come up with? Well, on that front, we were the second ever data source for Billboard after Nielsen. So it became this kind of, that's the industry Bible and checked every week and became this incredible validator and also you know it wasn't a very lucrative contract but we got tickets to the billboard music awards and had big team building activities in las vegas every year in hotel rooms and got to make the team feel like they were part of the music industry in that way and just on that front like the billboard deal came after the sony deal which came after the top spin deal which came after the foundry group investment which came after tech stars so i think just that like the billboard deal never would have happened without all those other confirming pieces. And I think about a ladder of credibility and climbing that one step at a time. So figuring out what is that highest peak of credibility in your industry, like the billboard music charts and the music industry is pretty straightforward, but how do you get there and who do, who does billboard look to, to kind of validate this? And they look to the labels and the labels look at Topspin, which had, was a really buzzy music startup run by Ian Rogers, who had taken investment from Foundry Group. And Foundry Group, you know, look, was really involved with Techstars. And Jason was a lead mentor and stuck his neck out for us to get into the program to begin with. And that came through a different connection. So I think just the continuing to pull each thread wherever it goes is really important. Yeah, it's pretty powerful. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of companies, they, they start out and they say, oh, I want to go to Sony or I want to go to Billboard. And they just today will just call them and be like, oh, I, I, I want you guys to, to do this. And I know it's going to be a three-year process and you have no traction, you have no customers, you have no proof of concept, right. you have no idea if you can do it. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into and then all these different things. And then ultimately you're, you're driving off a cliff. And so I think it's important. I mean, I, I know you kind of dubbed this like ladders of uh, credibility, it's it's interesting because it really is a step-by-step -step piece. It's not trying to, if you try to jump to the top, it's it's too hard. And, and the odds of success are just, are just not in your favor. So that's, that's really interesting. Let's, let's, let's wrap a bow in this. And we're, we're going to have to have uh part two of this because I feel like I have a thousand more things that we could discuss, but what, something that I love to leave the audience with every single episode is a favorite book or a favorite resource that you guys recommend for them to check out, whether it's founders, go to market leaders, whatever you guys think. After we sold Next Big Sound, we all stopped reading, so. <laughs> we only no, listen to music. 
radar recently it's not about this specifically but i, I thought it was interesting was uh, dan lyons remember fake steve jobs column from back in the day his newest book is called stfu the power of keeping your mouth shut in an endlessly noisy world that's a big change from when we were building next big sound the world feels a lot noisier now that's a good one that's a good one yeah i i don't have maybe one related to sales but um one book that stood out to me was like the no asshole rule i think that's what it's called and i remember being given that by by Judd Valesky, actually. Um, nice name drop. And that one always stood out to me when you're just building your team. No matter how good someone might be, if they're an asshole, you don't want them on your team. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, we learned that the hard way a couple of times. Yeah. I think for me, I, you know, I read like crazy and all the, you know, canonical books, like hard thing about hard things and zero to one and, Founders podcasts, like you should, predictable revenue ones we mentioned, you should read all of those. I'm now reading fewer but longer books. So I'm reading The Making of the Atomic Bomb right now, which I've always wanted to read, but it's like 1,200 pages and it goes really deep into like where the physicists were located and how they all got to America in the beginning of the Manhattan Project and how, you know, the government is wrestling with this. Is it even physically possible? Who's working on it? How do we determine what's needed to actually produce one of these things? What do we do with the power that once it's there, what does the world look like after the war? Will it be ready in time for the end of the war? And I think just finding things that are intellectually interesting to you outside of what everybody else is reading is a really cool thing that I wish I'd done earlier because it gives you all sorts of ideas and analogies like the parallels with AI and other tech, you know, superhuman technology. It's just a totally different, no one's reading about the making of the atomic bomb right now. How does the team get, how does the audience get more of you? LinkedIn, Twitter, plug your guys' new companies as well. Give us a little bit of insight into what you guys do now. Cool. I'm running subsidy, subsidy.com, S-U-B-C-I-T-Y. We're helping small manufacturers claim and collect economic incentives and tax credits. There's over 40,000 manufacturers in California alone, so more than the total global number of in independent bands and musicians, and they spend trillions of dollars a year, and, and we're helping them more efficiently access the government dollars and loans and grants and financing that we're designed to help them hire and buy equipment. So subsidy.com or Mr. Alex White on Twitter. Nice. Since Mir and I are working on Beam, you can find us at heybeam.com. We're building immersive shopping experiences, starting with shoppable mood boards uh, for brands running on Shopify. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm Dodeca. I don't know what Samir is. I'm at Samir Rayani. Nice. Thank you, guys. This has been a blast. I love, I love going back and, and listening to this story. I've heard it many times and every time I always pick up something new that I, I never knew. So thanks for guys for, for all getting together. It's good to see everybody on the, on the same screen. Thank thanks, you. Alex. Thanks. thanks, Alex. All right, guys. guys. Next time. See ya. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.